as our country keeps growing, they simply cannot ignore progress. You have to play the game with everyone else. You have to be on these different social media channels. You have to learn to create content in bite-sized pieces. You have to make things relevant for your market. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Au, venture capitalist, Sarah founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 40,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.bravesea.com. Stay well and stay brave. HD Mall is a healthcare marketplace in Southeast Asia connecting patients to over 1,800 medical providers. This covers multiple categories such as dental, aesthetics, and elective surgeries. Over 300,000 patients have accessed more affordable healthcare via HD Mall. Get yourself a well-deserved health checkup. If you're in Thailand, go to hdmall.co.th. If you're in Indonesia, go to hdmall.id. Hey, Gita, what a wonderful uh, day it is. Hey, thanks so much for talking to me today. Yeah, well, you know, the big news for this is the start of 2024. 2023 was a big year with the unraveling of zero interest rate policy. It became a bear market simultaneously across the US and Southeast yes. Asia. RIP is ZIRP. And then 2024, there's a lot of uh, big things coming up in store. So before we start and talk about 2024, what do you think was the biggest thing for you in 2023? Oh my gosh, I think being in a bear market always teaches me to stick to fundamentals. I think it's something I say all the time and my analysts and associates and probably my entire team is very sick of hearing that from me. But I really believe that what determines the results long term is your habits. And I say that not just for companies, but I also say that for people. In the end, when I look at investments and when I look at life in general, it's really not about just leveraging the good times, but it's also about surfing through the bad times, right? So if you have great habits in your personal and your professional life, and they tend to trickle over too in some ways, then you can probably withstand almost anything. So I became much more focused on fundamentals, good habits, good governance, and all of those things. Again, not just for companies, but also for personal life and everything to do with my both personal and work-life balance. I think for myself, 2023 was very much a big reminder of how a bad understanding of business can really lead you astray. So I think I met, obviously, founders who are not technically sound and then so yet of the companies undergo that turmoil. I've met a lot, actually a lot of good founders who are very thoughtful about the business, but at some level, due to the interaction with the board, the economics are tracking, the North Goldwall, the assumption that growth is more important than profitability, kind of get really hammered by this simultaneous macro environment. And I think it really reminded me what it takes to, I think at one level, know the answer in the sense like, hey, you know, it's not GMV. And for example, your CM2 is your revenue on the platform side and your CM3 or 4 is your actual cost margin or contributor margin. That's like, I think kind of know it at one level and then you explain it to them and they can be argumentative, whatever it is, but in the bull market, you could just grow that like crazy. And then the bear market, it turns out that there's a reversion to these norms, which is quite sudden. I think that's flip side from my perspective as well. 
was it made me reflect on what does it take to build out the credibility and trust to be able to get through that? Because at the end of the day, I say only one out of X number of investors that are in the market, that alone the whole universe of advisors are talking to. And then looking at what they think the fundraising market wants to see from them and so, so forth. And just because you have the, you know, air quote, technically or more conservative point of view that turns out to be better in the bear market, doesn't mean that you're hurt. Right? So I don't really get any thrill from saying like, oh, I'm right. And your company is dead because it's terrible because people lose their jobs. The founder's like really sad yes. and you got to have the stuff. Now it's got me thinking, it's like, okay, what does it take? Because the truth is we know there's going to be another bull market in 10 years and there's going to be another bull market in 15 years. And so I think it's an interesting reflection about not just knowing the answer, but also being able to, I wouldn't say the word be persuasive because that implies it's about persuasion. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you reach that? consensus more deeply. And I think no answers here, but this is something that I reflected on for 2023. Thank you. That's very cool. And you're right on that. When we think of working and business in general, the really big asset is trust. Like that's a huge part of anything really. But in work, it really is about the trust you have and that ability to communicate effectively with all your different stakeholders, with your founders, with your investors. And that is all based on a certain amount of what habits are you putting uh, and you're implementing in your work. Do you have certain SOPs for communications? Do you have certain best practices that you maintain with founders and with investors? And I think, again, 2023 really drilled into me the importance of just having these very strong and positive habits, including communication strategies. Yeah, definitely. And now everyone's thinking about 2024, right? Because it's like, oh, okay, we're at the bottom, hopefully. How long is this bottom going to be for? What are the big things going to happen this year? And we were just chatting a little bit that one of the big things for Indonesia markup causes the presidential elections. Um, actually, what's super interesting this year is that okay. a lot of the world's largest electoral democracies are having their elections. So I think whenever people have concerns about the way things are going now and then they say things such as, oh, my vote doesn't matter. Well, if you think about how many large countries with population sizes of Indonesia, 285 million, the United States, 300 million, that's a lot of people deciding on who would be essentially running their policies for four or five years or more, depending yeah. where you are. And I think that's why when I think of so many people also tend to get more apathetic over time, just saying, oh, there's no changes. I'm like, yeah, be very careful what you say and what you think, simply because you can actually create a change. And I think if enough people so, for example, most people of voting age, which depending on the country, could be like 100 million people think that they can't make a change and they can't. So now that we're on the brink of Indonesian elections, I'm very big on encouraging people that even though this might for you not a big deal or it doesn't affect you, almost everything in politics and in policy affect you, especially if you're in business. Lots of things will affect you, right? And so I think with Indonesia, again, we're a fairly new electoral system, right? I think we're only at 26 years right now. There are a lot of things that are still being put in place as we speak, but for the most part, our elections tend to go very quickly. And usually we tend to have the results by that night or latest the next day. So in general, it's a try to call it a, a democratic party, but more it's a big event that happens for us. And what I like about it, too, is at least in Indonesia, because, again, our democratic system is still fairly new. There's a lot of participation by young people for voting. 
I think it's very true about the fact that so many democracies, Taiwan had its elections in January. Later this year, there's also not just Indonesia, but also India, as well as the USA. And that's huge if you think about it. It's like all the big players, pretty much, especially in the geopolitics of today. I was recently in D.C. last week, and I was visiting the raised monuments, and I was catching up my friend, Yen Magruder. And it was a big reminder that 2020 elections was decided by effectively 40,000 voters, swing voters in the U.S. And that's uh, true. Uh, you yeah. know, between one candidate and I was just like, wow, that's like every vote counts. And the fact is, like you said, being able to vote is a privilege and a gift. I think there are many societies in the world that don't get to have a vote. And again, I'm not making a normative statement here, but I'm just saying like, hey, if you have it, just uh, take the time and vote for the future, right? I think it's a great way to signal what your intent is. And I think what's interesting is that for Indonesia as well, that three candidates are running and I think folks are thinking to themselves, like, okay, what does that mean for the Indonesian economy? What's, you know, the dust settles? What does the process look like? And what does the post-electoral process look like as well? Yeah, I think when we're looking at the legacy of the last 10 years, and actually this has been in the works since we started electoral democracies post-1998, there is more of a cooperation now, I would say, between the public and private sector. For the longest time, due to the dictatorship of Suarto pre-1998, oftentimes back then, the keys of power was really held by one person, which is the leader, and then it trickles down, right? So there's good and bad in that. I'll say the good is when you have only one key of power, technically everything can be done very efficiently because one person says one thing, everyone has to follow it no matter what. Of course, this gets very questionable if that one person decides to do things that may not benefit a lot of people. So that can also create the grounds for other societal ills. And so I think one of the things that have been bridged in the country over the many years since 1998 is more trust between public and private sector. So for example, in Indonesia, there's a lot more participation by Kadin in a balanced way, which is our chamber of commerce. I think that's the translation. So between them and whoever's in administration. And that is a concept that pretty much all the candidates don't want to disturb or make worse. They want to continue to have a more robust private sector. They want to continue to have more wealth in the country, create more entrepreneurship opportunities, create more employment opportunities, increase people's well-being. And also, very important for lots of people to understand, the Indonesian constitution, when it was built circa independence in the 40s is a lot about ensuring that people have access to basic needs. I think that is something that I would say all the candidates can agree on. Mainly it's also because it's in your constitution. So it is a priority for the country in general. I really like the history that you put there, which is that the truth is that Southeast Asia democracy is relatively new. I mean, there was a wave of decolonization after World War II, 1950s, 1960s. And then democracy is new in India. It's new in many parts of Southeast Asia. It's learning process, not just for the various political parties, but also for society, right? And like I said, business as well, but how to accommodate. And I think that's where some of the loss of translation part we're talking about in the media side has come in because it's like, okay, everything is like black or white, good versus evil. And I'm like, oh my gosh, oh, oh we're all humans, you know, but all flawed candidates. And, you know, what's that investment? And I think it's a blessing when I think a system is able to generate three viable candidates, if that makes sense, that 
you know, like broadly makes sense. I mean, obviously different visions for the future, but it's not life or death. Well, hopefully not, but you know. Hopefully uh, not. Hopefully not, right? But you know, but I think, you know, when you have three viable candidates, then I think there's a whole point of democracy is that a lot of people have those paths, but it's within that. Yeah, I think I really like your assessment of how in our system, again, because it's so new, in the end, we don't have as binary and insidious hyper-polarization that happens in a lot of much more established and older democracies. So for example, I think hyperpolarization did happen in the previous election to no one's benefit, of course. We learn in other countries. But this time around, what I notice is that it tends to be more of a conversation. I mean, very early and very surface level conversation, but okay, fine. There are more conversations about the mission and vision. There are more conversations about programs regarding social services and social benefits. There are more of these topic focused questions rather than things that are just inciting anger. So rather than going into a very basic, very divisive topics, especially anything involving race and ethnicity, which tends to happen in a lot of emerging democracies, we are now at least sticking to more questions regarding track record, future vision and mission, political party affiliation. What is that party known for? So at least the conversation is not as hyperpolarized as it was in the previous elections. And that I say, as small of a progress that is, it's still a progress. We're talking about political discourse. And this is a real gift, honestly, because it's not a given, this one. And then just like you said, just having an election one after another is progress, right? And I think the beauty of a democracy, hopefully, is like, hey, you didn't win this time around, but hopefully in four years, five years, again, I crack at it. And I think if those are the rules everybody agrees to, then I don't know what's the word. Like there's a ceiling of how angry you can get, if that makes sense. And you just work very hard and you campaign very hard. But it can get really bad. I think people forget how bad it can get. Like you said, you know, the Singapore Malaysia had racial riots in the 1960s. Yeah. You know, it was a big, big hot mess. And they led to the dissolution of the Federation, right? And Singapore and Malaysia went their separate ways. It was just irresolvable because of, like you said, culture, society, but also the behavior of various politicians that acted to effectively inflame the situation, right? So I think it's glad to hear that, you know, the stewardship by political actors is something that we hope for and I'm glad to see more of. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's down to zero. I wouldn't say that there are zero conversations about ethnicities, religion, etc. Because those are just hot fun topics that are, I think, evergreen in Indonesian politics. But I realize now that there's just a lot more media coverage and uh, opinions. And also when you look at social media, like the conversations have been really more geared towards Again, despite very surface level discussions of it, but it's about something like it's about mining. It's about political party track record, you know, their old administrative track record. So, again, at least it now has more meat to the right. discussion. Yeah, it's the trend, right? And I think that's what I'm happy about. I think what's interesting, I'm kind of curious as well, is like when you look ahead past elections, so obviously you want to settle on a candidate. But what do you think the rest of 2024? Because sure. I think in my head, for me personally, I think it's a little bit clearer what the post-electoral process happens in the US, for example, or what the post-electoral process happens, for example, in Singapore and Malaysia. I'm curious what happens in Indonesia from your perspective. 
So this is where it's super important to realize that Indonesian politics is not American politics. And oftentimes when people are based in, let's say, the U.S. or the U.K., so they are very used to whatever system that they're in to look at everything through that lens instead. I know that in the U.S., you know, because I lived there for decades, there's this hyperpolarization, this notion that if one person gets elected, automatically everything goes to hell. So it's true. There is this view that there's one morally right option and that's it. And if you're not in that morally right option, then you're wrong. And another thing that doesn't help is whoever gets elected then will attempt to do their best in the public policy space to ensure that the other party never comes back and just never gets represented. That is just something that's not a pattern in Indonesian politics. Yeah. So yeah. what does it look like? So, you know, election results come out, there'll be a split. Maybe someone is a majority, there are two smaller minorities in terms of the representation. But how does that shake out after that? Yeah, so we we are set to have either one or two rounds. And basically, a political candidate can end up being president if they win a very, very large majority in the first round. Then there's no need for a second round. But if it's a small enough percentage, then they'll do a second runoff. And that's our system. And we also don't have uh, electoral colleges. It's, you know, one person, one vote. And then usually what happens after the results are in, you know, then the winning candidate starts creating their cabinet, their structure. Now, that is the part where sometimes they will hire people of the losing party or the losing candidate. Like, that's actually fairly common. Again, because the country is still very young. It's still only, again, what, 26-year electoral democracy. And also very young in terms of GDP per capita. We're still under $5,000 GDP per capita. So it's almost like a lot of people realize we don't have a lot of space to just mess around and be hyper-polarized because we can't afford to. Like, we really need to do a lot of work. We still have a lot of infrastructures to be built. We still have a lot of foreign investment to attract. We still have a lot of things in our homework that we need to do. So oftentimes uh, what happens is even the losing candidates or the losing parties will get absorbed in the administration. That's why sometimes one of the biggest critics of Indonesian politics is if you look at it from a party standpoint, it's not true that a party will have that same concept or value for 50 years. They may change over time because, again, the parties are also very young. So it's not that the party's been around for 130 years. The party's probably been around for 20. And because the party's been around for 20 years, sometimes they may have to shift or they may have to change their views according to the context and also according to the market that they then attract. Maybe they end up attracting more millennials or Gen Z in which they start having to change how they view certain types of policies. Or maybe your economy changes and your context changes, even questions about equality, right? That changes over time. So that's why when people look at political parties in Indonesia, they often go, oh, how come this party isn't known for that one thing and only one thing and it hasn't changed? And I'm like, well, probably because it's been around for 20 years, (laughs) probably because it's also still trying to find himself. Because it's still trying to figure out what it should stand for, which is common. And I think that's why one of the benefits about the Indonesian electoral year is that I see more collaboration happening usually post-elections 
than a lot of other much more established democracies. You mentioned Gen Z, right? And obviously everyone loves Gen Z. I'm just kind of curious. So when you look at Gen Z, what does Gen Z look like in Indonesia in terms of like, you know, what kind of issues they're concerned about? How are they consuming the news? How are they making decisions? Because I think most of the public media is about American Gen Z and how they make decisions. I'm so curious, what does it look like in Indonesia? I think the big difference too that I see in politics in Indonesia is how many young people are actually involved in it. Not just from a grassroots perspective, but all the way up into legislation, all the way in the ministry. We just have a lot of young people. And again, part of the benefit of being a very young democracy, you also need people. We're a young democracy. We're also an emerging economy. So we need people in both places. And what tends to happen is sometimes when young people feel that they've maxed out their growth in the private sector, they become very attracted to serving in the public sector. So I know a lot of young people in the public sector, also maybe in political party management and even in grassroots organization. I know a a lot of Gen Z activists and they're doing fantastic job. In Indonesia, because Gen Z also makes up such a large percentage of the country. So like, what is it? 40-ish percent is under 35. But it's huge. Everybody's Gen Z. Who cares about the millennials? <laughs> like, it's so large. It's so big. I mean, it's so many people. I don't know. Like, don't quote me on that. Maybe check it first. But I think it's like 40-ish percent. Really large number. And in a lot of places, maybe they see it just as potential voters they need to attract. Yeah. yeah, Indonesia probably sees the same thing, but the big difference is they also go into politics. They also end up serving in public sector. They actually do things. They're very active and they're very idealistic, which is a great thing. Oftentimes people look at idealism as a negative thing because you should be realistic. But then again, uh, Gen Z's remind us that you can't change anything if you're always realistic. <laughs> like you do need to dream bigger yeah. to make bigger and greater things. They're right. And in Indonesia, some of the big things that Gen Z have pushed are issues regarding the environment, which I think is, I mean, it's beyond timely. I think we needed to change like circa 50 years ago, but here they are fighting the fight. They ask questions a lot about inequality, which yes, as a developing economy, that is something we have to watch out for because I also don't know how healthy it is for the social fabric of a country if the inequality is so big that you have millions of people finding it very hard to get money for their health care and for their chronic health conditions. And then a really large amount of people just owning 50% of the wealth. I don't think that's probably going to vote really well for the country. They're going to have a lot of unrest. They're going to have a lot of deep mistrust with the system, which are you sure you like to have that if you're a democracy, right? And I think that's something that these Gen Zs really, they don't just talk the talk, but they really walk the walk, constantly bringing it up in conversations and discourses, including in the private sector. They're active in Kadin, actually. Mm -hmm. They're active in a lot of other entrepreneur networks and national organizations. And they really push and lobby for these questions, which is great. Sometimes in Indonesia, when we create national policies, it may seem logically like it's the right thing to do. Build infrastructure. I mean, no one's going to argue with you on that, that it's a good thing. But it's also good to have the Gen Z voice in it to give us checks and balances and ask, hey, is that environmentally correct? Are you doing the best that you can for the environment as you pursue this project? Or, hey, are you violating indigenous people's rights? Are you giving them the benefit of really getting positive impact out of this project? 
And that's the kind of thing that the Gen Z, not just voters, but also activists, organizers, political party affiliates, that's what they've given to us and contributed to the country. Amazing. And what's interesting is that what defines Gen Z, of course, is not just their youth, which means that they have these dreams and they're not as cynical maybe as the millennials although it was like you know but also the other part is that they grew up in the internet age right so they always had internet growing up and mobile internet which is different from like dial up which is for the millennial and I think big things that people would I think casually would say would be like short form video is very important reviews and peer endorsements are very important social networks uh, whatsapp not facebook for example those are the things that they will stereotypically say, for example, yeah, the U.S. description of Gen Z voters in terms of their information diet. Uh, how would you look at it for Indonesia? It's very similar. So I think one of the things that Gen Z have really spearheaded in Indonesia is the dissent the dissemination of information in very entertaining form. And they're very proactive about it. So I'm going to give them mad props for this. And in Indonesia, what I'm noticing a lot is even Gen Zs that don't understand politics in the beginning, they try to find ways to understand it. Lots of people come up with solutions for it too, which is amazing. And so, by the way, I am not an investor, nor am I anything in this company. But, you know, some of the platforms that I know that have done a great job informing people are Bijak Mamili. ID and also what is up Indonesia, where they package information about Indonesian politics in a way that young people can understand, digest, and also involve nuance in all of it. Because oftentimes when you talk about politics, it's very easy to get into a black or white, good and bad, right or wrong binary conversation. And what the Gen Z movements I've seen in Indonesia have attempted to do is wrestle it and make it theirs, right? Well, actually, it's it's a lot of nuance and it's a lot of nuance because of this, because of our history, because of our constitution, our track record, everything. And that is something like I'm very proud to see, because I think oftentimes in countries that are getting richer or just getting more modern, there's sometimes this apathetic view of politics. There's, oh, I don't need to care about it. It doesn't matter to me, especially when I was younger. I will say that for a lot of us, we were all just, oh, how can I even change anything? So it's so good to see that. The generation after me being much more proactive, just much more creative, creating all these short form videos, very informational platforms, and also just having all the multiple access to this information. So you don't want to see us on your laptop, go to TikTok. You don't want to go to TikTok, here's us on Instagram. You don't want to Instagram, you know, here's another way to access our information. So that I think has been huge. And as our country keeps, they simply cannot ignore progress. You have to play the game with everyone else. You have to be on these different social media channels. You have to learn to create content in bite-sized pieces. Like you cannot make flyers that are 20 pages long anymore. You have to make things relevant for your market. Yeah. I was uh, walking around DC and we went to the Roosevelt Memorial, World War II, and FDR. And there was a sculpture of him speaking effectively over the radio to somebody who was listening at home. And what my friend who was being a tour guide, yeah, and I was saying like, oh, you know, uh, FDR was the master of this new communication medium called the radio. 
right? And so he won that, right? And then they start, you know, and you just reminded me of that because what I said with Fian was like, I said, hey, you know, JFK was, you know, the master of the new medium called television, right? He looked good on television. He spoke well. And then you could say that Trump was uh, definitely the master of Twitter. So there's that. And then what you invited me off is like, who's going to be the master of short form video of TikTok or YouTube shots or Instagram reels? I mean, they're the same format, right? 30 seconds. It's a real, what's the word? Like you said, information medium revolution, right? And whoever masters it is going to be on top. Exactly. Yeah. I think also there's a lot of probably fear that if we do only these short form mediums, therefore people will not get into deeper conversations. Like, I mean, yes, there's that risk, of course. And of course, there's the risk that, you know, with a proliferation of AI and then the upcoming deep fakes that it's going to make it much easier and it does make it much easier to make short form videos with a lot of misinformation. I guess I counter that with the sense that as what you said, it's not that people didn't do that before either, though. It's not that radio could not be used for misinformation back in the day. It's not that when television came out and became the new on television as a medium that it also wasn't used in a way that's hurtful for other candidates. Like that will always exist, like no matter your media. So I think it's more about like, how do we find safeguards in order to continue to create helpful and informative new types of information, right? Like how do you do it in forms that'll matter over time for our future? Because you cannot not progress. Like you can't stuck your rounds and just say, I know that's big, but I'll just never go there because that's simply not your market. And again, as someone who's very big into product market fit, I think I see it all the time. I'm like, dude, do you have product market fit? Product market fit exists for everyone, including politics. Who's your market? Who's your constituents? Who's your stakeholders? Who cares about you, right? And that's the case for almost everything and everybody, private and public sector. Yeah, amazing. On that note, I'll to kind of like summarize the three big takeaways ago from this conversation. First of all, thanks for sharing about our 2023 reflections about why it means to be thoughtful and thinking through the fundamentals in terms of business, but also in terms of governance, as well in terms of the business model. Secondly, thank you for walking us through the Indonesia elections and I think not just the process, but also thinking through, I think the history of it, the fact that this is still a young electoral democracy and the fact that this election so far, the campaign has been a step better than the last one and walking us through like what that post-electoral process where the negotiations happen and there's an integration of the various points of view. I think it's really heartening. Uh, lastly, thanks for sharing about the Gen Z generation in Indonesia and not just in terms of the communication mediums and their habits, but also how they are similar to some of the trends that we see across Gen Z voters across the world. Also, I think specific differences about especially how they're also willing to be part of the public service as well. On that note, thank you so much, Kita. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.